Hi, this is the Reverend Andrew Christensen. You're listening to Doth Protest Too Much. We are a Christ-centered, reformationally-minded podcast that explores the history and theology of the Christian church. This podcast originally started as a forum for discussing the developmental history of Christian thought, what is often called historical theology. And it has since grown into an ecumenical team of hosts, myself, Stephen Burnett, Pastor Charlie Beeman, and the Reverend James Rickenbaker. We're all interested in the past, present, and future of the church. We share a commitment to the central place that grace has in the message of the good news, a message we feel often gets lost in our day and age, sometimes in religion itself. A message that is of God's goodwill toward us is echoed in the following words from St. Paul. This is a true saying and worthy of all men to be received, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the chief one. I pray that the discussions in our episodes, whether casual or scholarly, can speak to how the story and witness of Christians from our past can comfort and strengthen us for today. God bless. Hi, everyone. Uh, Welcome back to another episode of Doth Protest. And this is our second in the series of our favorite hymns. We got all four DPTM hosts with us. We got Stephen in the left-hand corner, though this is not, there's no video, so it doesn't matter what corner I say he's in. We got James and Charlie uh, below me, beneath me. Uh, They're not really beneath me, but... um, so all four of us are here and we're continuing down our list. Uh, this is a series where each episode we talk about one of our favorite hymns. We're each going to talk about by the time the series is done, we've, we'd have each gone through our top five favorite. And so um, we're on a little bit more limited time than usual, but we'll still have a good uh, full episode with lots of good substance. So um, we're going to go ahead and roll in, but I want to do a, kind of a kind of go around and see how everyone's doing and it kind of because we've been on a hiatus now doth protest too much has been on a hiatus for like a month and that uh it's just how sometimes we we will have like an episode every week and then not be, have an episode for a while so in august was a busy month for me <laughs> i guess i'll go ahead and start uh because it was the beginning of the school year and so um i was getting in had a lot going on getting ready for that, but um, that is going very well right now. Um, I have smaller class sizes because I wanted to teach more sections of it. And I'm uh, still teaching eighth and ninth grade, uh, New Testament class and a history of religion class, multiple sections of each. And so um, the groups are really, really, really good. The kids, um, you know, I've, I've just seen a lot of interest and full attention in classes and interesting questions and um it's just been really really good i'm very blessed very happy and um and other things too but i don't have time to get into and so we'll just move on to the next uh person how about you charlie how are things 
Uh, things are good, but very busy. Um, beginning of August, I always have a continuing education course, um, which is a vacation for my family and work for me. And this year it was on uh, the theology of Seminex. Uh, it was a lot of fun. And uh, last uh, Friday, um, my semester started um, at Institute of Lutheran Theology. I'm taking Theology of Protestant Scholasticism. So I've been reading Melanchthon's Loki Communes all week, which is lots of fun. And, um, and then uh, it doesn't get any less busy next week. Next week, my kids start back at school, and I have a junket to St. Louis where I'm getting trained in um, my bureaucratic role that I have with the Montana District of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. But I'm also going to hang out in St. Louis for a couple extra days and play at Concordia Historical Institute, yeah. um, going through the archives and seeing if I can find anything um, that might be helpful for my dissertation. I imagine that's like a kid in a candy store for you. Um, it will be. I've actually... I've never been beyond the front desk, so this will be my first time, you know, getting back where all the magic is. <laughs> How about you, James? The uh, the summer itself was incredibly busy, which is a bit backwards for parish ministry, but it's been the case. That's been that's been the case for the last few years, and now that the program year has kicked back off for us at church. I feel like we're back in the swing of things and it's actually not as busy. So um, for whatever reason, that's the way it has been. And and uh, it's been particularly busy with uh, now trying to crib train our daughter, our four month old. And that has been um, mercifully not bad. Uh, she's she's sleeping in the crib. Um Pretty well. I mean, she cries for a little while before she goes to sleep and then wakes up a couple of times at night, which uh, my wife, Rachel, goes in there and, uh, of course, feeds her. And she's she's doing great. I mean, we're we're really, really blessed in that regard. And I'm kind of waiting for the other shoe to drop. Um, so but but things are going well. Well, it's always unpredictable when our seasons of busyness and seasons of rest are <laughs> right. Right. Oh, summer will be like that. No, it's not. Oh, fall is going to be crazy. No, it's not. So it's yeah. right. Uh, that, James, because I, I was on the phone with a buddy today who's got a newborn, and he said, "Lightning just struck my neighborhood. I'll call you back." Click. <laughs> All right. <laughs> what? Like the general area where your house is? And he was he was panicked, and he called back. No, everything's fine. Everything's fine. And it's just newborn, you know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's awesome. That no. Awesome. Um, Sorry, I said he's going to survival mode. I get it. it. <laughs> uh, no, I've been uh, we've been doing good. We've been working real hard over the summer, and uh, and we're in uh, we're outside of Jackson, Mississippi, which right now is massively like flooded in downtown. They've oh. got all kinds of issues with that, and uh, we, Jackson has been under a boil advisory for the last two months, and so now the, the mayor just said he was going to cut off water, just turn it off. Uh, because it's, yeah, I know it's unsafe or something like that. And so we're very pleased that we're not, you know, directly suffering from that, but it's, it's pretty intense that, uh, 
to, to be so nearby all that going on. Um, but yeah, we're doing well. Um, my wife's doing her residency program uh, at UMC and, and that's, that's rocking and rolling. I mean, she's working all kinds of hours, but she's doing really good. And uh, yeah, it's been, it's been good stuff. So uh, I guess we'll get rolling right in. I think we were going to go in kind of a reverse order ish. James, do you want to go first? All right, let's have you go first. Man. So uh, my second hymn of our top five is my song is love unknown. Okay. Um, do you want to, do you want to, we'll go ahead and play it. Yeah. So my song is Love Unknown comes from an Anglican background. Uh, It was written by Samuel Crossman. The poem itself was Samuel Crossman uh, was born in 1624, died in 1683. He was a Church of England priest, but sympathized heavily with the Puritans. And some sources actually say he was officially confessionally a Puritan, but he was certainly sympathized enough to be booted from the Church of England with the Act of Uniformity in 1662, which ended um, the the reign of terror of Oliver Cromwell and the Commonwealth of England and restored the monarchy and also restored um, Anglican worship. Um, That's a long and sordid history in England, uh, but suffice it to say, Puritan England did not look very much like Anglican England. Um, the Puritans aren't a hundred percent bad. I should also say, even though I know that's going to be Charlie crucifying me shortly, but, uh, there is a really good book, interestingly enough, by a guy named Dane Ortland about how the Puritans, um, really do understand the heart of Jesus for sinners. It's just much of everything that comes after that is deeply problematic. But anyways, I, I digress. This hymn was written after. You froze, James. Can you. Uh... Um, the hymn is um, in the hymnal. I know that our viewership can't hear so James, that or can't can see this, up? but it's in the Jesus Christ, our Lord section of the hymnal. Can you back up, James, like uh, 30 seconds of what you went through? I'll have to check the audio later, but we were having uh, some connection issue, I guess. Uh, okay. So uh, back it up about 30 seconds. So yeah, <laughs> I, had talk- I had talked about um, the Puritans. Had I finished that by that point? Uh, you talked about it. The, you started to get into Dane Ortland. Oh, okay. So Dane Ortland is uh, a Presbyterian pastor who specializes in the Puritans. He wrote a book called Gentle and Lowly that uh, came out a couple of years ago, and it's about the heart of Jesus for sinners in the writings of the Puritans. Um, after 
after that, though, pretty much uh, what we see after that that profound understanding of how Jesus loves sinners, um, there are a lot of things that Puritans get profoundly uh, wrong. Um, the poem Tell us what I, they get wrong. I, I just, I mean, I agree. But oh well, um, we all love what they get wrong. So tell us what they get wrong. <laughs> well, so for one thing, they they understood the marks of the church to be word, sacrament, and discipline. And so, um, the uh, the logical outcome of that is that every peccadillo would basically be treated like an excommunicable offense. Um, the Puritans were. Um, they understood grace to a certain extent in Jesus, but were not a very grace-filled people, um, and so they treated each other pretty uh, pretty poorly. And that's just simply a matter of history. Um, that's a point. Point of ignorance: What is a peccadillo? Uh, a minor sin. Okay, there we go. Um, yeah, sorry. Uh, so modern day legalism can, yes. American Anglo legalism descends much from Puritan. Oh, decidedly, decidedly, yes. Um, the Puritans were profoundly legalist, and of course, that creates um, its own deep problems. Mm-hmm. So, the poem "My Song Is Love Unknown" was written in 1664, and it was uh, written. In 1664, which is, as I, I mentioned before we lost connection, um, was the same year that the parish where I'm currently serving was founded. Um, so it was a couple of years after our 1662 prayer book and also the uh, Act of Uniformity in 1662. The hymn is found in the hymnal, and our viewership won't be able to see this, but it's found in the hymnal in the section, Jesus Christ, Our Lord. But I think it would be more appropriate to be a Lent hymn or a Holy Week hymn, because that's kind of the focus of the hymn itself, is Holy Week, the cross, and the meaning of the cross, which um, for any Christian should make this um, a very, very important hymn, especially not just because of the beauty of the language, but because of the reality of um, what it conveys. So. Uh, I'll just go through a couple of things about the hymn. I won't read all seven verses, but um, but I think that there are a few points that need to be made. So the beginning of the, the hymn, the first verse of the hymn, my song is love unknown, my Savior's love to me, love to the loveless shown that they might lovely be. Oh, who am I that for my sake, my Lord should take frail flesh and die? The Revised Common Lectionary, track one, last week had a reading from Jeremiah where Jeremiah speaks to the people of Israel and said, um, because you have worshipped worthless idols, you yourselves have become worthless. But it ends on a note of grace because God still loves Israel and elects Israel anyway, even though they are worthless um, by nature. And that's one of the things that came to mind when I was reading through the lyrics of this hymn before um, before today, uh, because the the purpose of the hymn is to say that though we did not deserve it, or as Paul would say, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That's 
the point. And then it goes into um, the hosannas that were sung on uh, Palm Sunday. Uh, but then very shortly thereafter, um, so it says, um, resounding all the day, hosannas to their king, then crucify is all their breath. And for his death, they thirst and cry. The dissonance between Palm Sunday and Good Friday is staggering. And I think it's in, it's it's something that we should all be able to sense when we're in church during Holy Week, that it goes from this cry, this Hosanna cry, the Messiah has come to on Good Friday, you know, five days later, mm -hmm. um, they're calling for his for his death in the most ignominious way possible. Um, the most shame-filled way possible. Death as a criminal and as as uh, the scum of the earth. Um, the the poem continues by talking about um, the the terror of the injuries that were dealt to Christ. Um, sweet injury, or they, they they are you know what makes this rage in spite. He made the lame to run. He gave the blind their sight, sweet injuries. Yet they at these themselves displease and against him rise. Um, Christ did nothing to, to deserve uh, the death that he died. And yet he was willing to die it for us in our stead, the perfect spotless lamb of God. Um, and this of course gets to the heart of what we, what we in a reformational um, theology talk about with justification by faith alone, justification by faith only. Um, and uh, what that really is, is touching on is that Christ who was without sin took our sin upon himself and gave to us his righteousness, the, the happy exchange. And then the last two verses um, talk about um that happy exchange. What may I say? Heaven was his throne, but mine the tomb wherein he lay. Just the the profound realization that I deserve death by very my by very nature, by my sinfulness. And yet he died that death in my stead. Um it is fascinating to me that Episcopalians sing this hymn, and yet most Episcopalians utterly denounce substitutionary atonement. <laughs> I mean it's it's even more fascinating that they hear scripture read that uh, that proclaims substitutionary atonement and yet um, disavow it. But that's a separate issue altogether. And then the final verse of the hymn, verse seven, here might I stay and sing no story so divine. Never was love, dear king, never was grief like thine. This is my friend in whose sweet praise I all my days could gladly spend. It's it finishes with a note of praise. Um, perhaps even a note of a desire to share this magnificent news with people around us, which is, of course, part and parcel to our call as disciples of Christ. And so it, I won't say it's the perfect hymn, but every time I hear it <clears throat> in its fullness and singing in its fullness, I tear up. Yeah, it's I mean, it's that's why it's one of my favorites, because it's just so beautiful. It's a beautiful tune. Uh, um, yeah, I mean, I, I remember when we, you gave us the list, I, I listened to them all in the beginning, all 20 of our hymns, you know, that will be revealed throughout the series. But just playing that now, um, you know, it's uh, I could see how the music alone makes you cheer up, but also with the 
lyrical content, the message. Yeah. Well, thanks, James. Um, any comments, any takers for next one? Well, uh, say a couple things. Uh, one is I'm not going to crucify you for saying nice things about the Puritans. My 10 times great grandfather is William Bradford. Me too. Oh, well, y'all are governor of the, the colony, so I'll allow it. Um, and then uh, <laughs> the other uh, the other thing is um, I kind of have a complicated relationship with this hymn. Um, I used to absolutely adore it. Um, and then I did a Lenten sermon series on it. And uh, that kind of killed it for me. <laughs> I'm just saying it too much in seven weeks. And uh, so now I, I only use it about once a year. And it's starting to grow on me again. But um, it's one that just, uh, with that level of frequency, that was that was too much. Sure. Um, I, I took a class on the theology of corporate worship in college. And the funny thing that my professor noted is that if you look up the hymn in one of the Missouri Synod hymnals, what you'll find is that it is one of the, the few um, hymns with a non-Lutheran source that after the name of the author and his dates doesn't have comma ALT period which means that the text was altered in some way. Um, <laughs> the, uh, the version of it we have in our hymnal is unaltered from Crossman's original, um, which uh, that's about as high a praise as you can give a text uh, in a Lutheran hymnal. Yeah, absolutely. That's surprising. Wow. Um, I mean, honestly, just the fact that that hymn could sustain a nine-week, you know, sermon series is impressive in itself. Um, you can get that much out of it. There's that much truth in it. Uh, that's something I'm I'm kind of learning through this is that, like, my view, because I grew up uh, evangelical, and so my view of a hymn is any song that was sung in church that was old when I was a kid. That's, like, my <laughs> definition of a hymn. <laughs> It's like, if it's not something that came out since I've been alive, it's probably a hymn. And uh, in like looking through the songs, I picked them like, that's, that's not a hymn, that's not a hymn. But we're going to go through them anyway. It's going to be fun. Um, we're going to learn something. But, but there's so, like nowadays, I feel like, uh, at least in, in kind of, you know, uh, in my wing of the church, we don't have songs that could sustain seven weeks of preaching. You know, they're not that dense. They're not that thick. They're not that heavy. They're not that weighty. Um, they're very repetitive. And uh, they don't they don't have that kind of thing. And, and yeah, to me, I, I really enjoyed all of this and learning from you guys uh, about these other hymns. So, you know, I've I've talked ill of like praise and worship and more contemporary music, but I, uh, you know, I'm on record talking ill of it. But I don't know. I I like a lot of it. It serves like a different kind of purpose. There's nothing wrong with very repetitious lines and anything that gives glory to God and not, and a lot of it, like, I think like kind of growing up in the eighties and nineties, a lot of that was, um, not very good. It was trying to just mimic it was like, oh, I'm trying to, it's trying to be mm-hmm. Atlantis Morissette, but the Christian version, but I think it, it's, <laughs> the last like 10, I mean, I kind of, it kind of the 21st century it's, um, there's been a, a lot more, um, Gen, what I find is you know genuinely good songwriting in it, but also like 
a lot of contemporary Christian music is just contemporary renditions of traditional hymns too. And mm -hmm. some of my favorite renditions of some of the traditional hymns, um, I can't think of any off the top of my head. I always, I've been meaning to like bring like, you know, like, oh, you should check out, you know, Hillsong's version of this or that. And I, I right. literally was not Hillsong. So, but that, I'm just using it as an example. You're, just, you're, you're describing one of my pet peeves though, which I, I don't necessarily hate when they, uh, when they do a new rendition. What I hate is when uh, the musicians from this praise band take an ancient song and go, you know what it needs? It really could use like a bump in chorus. That's what it needs. And not only that, but I think I'm the guy to write that chorus for this song. Like, you know, no, you're not, dude. You're freaking not. <laughs> I think it's good. I think it's the same with church for hundreds of years without your chorus. And so it's, just, it's, a, it's a major pet peeve of mine. <laughs> so you, you mean you're not a big fan of Amazing Grace, My Chains Are Gone? <laughs> nope. <laughs> I wish this, these are the moments I wish we had the we we just released the Zoom video of it as well. Do y'all want to just put the Zoom video up for our video for the YouTube version? Oh, there man. you go. Um, yeah. There'll be some awkward edits oh, like, like this all of a sudden. Yeah. Like our, um, so uh who wants to James, you may have to duck out in like 10 minutes or what's yeah, 10 or 15, yep. Um would anyone like to go next? I'll go next. All right, Charlie, take it away. Um, so uh, my hymn is uh, Christ is the World's Redeemer. Uh, so I guess we start by listening to it. Shout out, of course, to Aaron Shows, uh, James' brother-in-law, organist based in Pasadena, uh, who's been recording these. That's that's his uh, recording, uh, an organ of these hymns. He would he would shoot me if I didn't correct you. It's Aaron Shows. Oh gosh, I'm so. That's all right. So when you find me, you can shoot me, Aaron. <laughs> <laughs> nah, he's at, he's he's easy going. Don't worry about it. That was a beautiful tune. Um, but interestingly enough, it is not the one that is in my hymnal. Oh, um, gosh. <laughs> that's okay. That's okay. Um, if the listeners want to hear the version um, that uh, I'm familiar with, all you need to do is go to Google and Google LSB, standing for Lutheran Service Book 539, and you'll come up with a whole bunch of different recordings of the version of the hymn that is in the hymnal that I use, LSB 539. I'll go ahead and um, put that in the show notes as well. And uh, and on a completely different note, if you want to hear, I think, the most brilliant critique of um, bad contemporary music that has ever been done, for that, you Google 
Clint Eastwood reads praise song lyrics. (laughs) (laughs) Trust me, um, it'll be the best three and a half minutes of your life. Um, And uh, his son, um, Kyle Eastwood, is an amazing jazz musician. (laughs) Check out Kyle as well. So I'm sorry. Go ahead, Charles. (laughs) So Christ is the world's redeemer. Um, This is an ancient hymn. Um, It's attributed to St. Columba. Uh, it's one of my favorite hymns, uh, both because of its the tune that I know it to, because of its content, and also because I was actually ordained on St. Columbus Day uh, 15 years ago. So um, that, that makes it a special hymn to me. I think it was the, the hymn of the day at my ordination. And... Uh, um, Columba is an interesting figure in that he was an Irish missionary to Scotland. He's kind of considered to be the the patron saint of Scotland in a similar way uh, to Patrick with Ireland. Uh, And Columba was uh, a monk from a monastery that was founded by Patrick's followers. Uh, And the place where Patrick grew up... um, is actually in modern-day Scotland. In those days, it was more England than Scotland, but there's a sense in which Patrick was the Scottish missionary to Ireland and Columba was the Irish missionary to Scotland a generation later. Uh, And so um, I love that aspect of Columba's story. But uh, the, the text, I think, is is the real reason uh, to love this hymn. Um, it, goes, it goes through um, Christ's life in a certain way, but it also expresses um, Christology in, in a very, very eloquent and, and beautiful way. Um, so I'm just going to read through it, and I'll comment briefly. It's not that long of a hymn, so I think I can read the whole thing. Um, And so long as I restrain myself, we can get through it in just a few minutes. But um, it starts out, Christ is the world's redeemer, the lover of the pure, the font of heavenly wisdom, our trust and hope secure, the armor of his soldiers, the Lord of earth and sky, our health while we are living, our life when we shall die. When I read that, that first stanza, it actually reminds me of one of my other favorite hymns, I don't remember if I picked it for this series, but uh, St. Patrick's Breastplate um, talks about Christ being the armor of, um, of the Christian. And I, I wonder if Columba might have been thinking about what Patrick had written a generation before uh, when he began uh, this hymn. Um, so, I mean, it kind of ties in with Ephesians 6. Uh, It also, I think, has some imagery from uh, Lady Wisdom and the Book of Proverbs, uh, which is often seen as a a, a text that points forward to Christ. Uh, But I I think, uh, you know, Columba here is grounding his hymn in uh, the hymn of, uh, of Patrick, which I imagine he was probably familiar with. Um. Second stanza, Christ has our host surrounded with clouds of martyrs bright. So there's Hebrews 12, 
2013 language, um, who wave their palms in triumph and fire us for the fight. And Christ the cross ascended to save a world undone and suffering for the sinful, our full redemption won. Um, the tune uh, that this is set to in my hymnal um, is very uh, martial. I, I mean, it sounds, it sounds like a hymn that you would sing while you're going into war. <laughs> and uh, so uh, that fits very nicely with this uh, second stanza in which um, talks about Christ protecting us, but then it talks about him marching into battle before us and where he's marching is the cross. Um, one of my favorite um, early church preachers was a guy named uh, Peter Chrysologos, which most people have never read any of his stuff, but he's kind of considered to be the, the, uh, the John Chrysostom of the West, uh, though his sermons are very, very short. Uh, but he has one where he, he says, you know, what's more glorious when you have a, a king who's um, in all of his armor, you know, running into battle on his um, glorious steed and trampling the enemy and, you know, causing all of this havoc. Or, or when um, you have the same king uh, with no horse or a donkey as a horse and no armor and he runs headlong into battle knowing that um, it's going to cost him his life, but doing it anyway, because that's what a king does for his people. And then, of course, he moves into um, bringing that right to the cross, that Jesus wears no armor. He does nothing to prevent his death. He runs headlong into it in order to save us. Um, I see uh, Columba using similar imagery um, here. Uh, third stanza. Down through the realm of darkness, he strode in victory, and at the hour appointed, he rose triumphantly. And now to heaven ascended, he sits upon the throne, whence he had ne'er departed, his father's and his own. So this is where you get some of the really high Christology. It starts out with the descent into hell, and uh, um, Lutherans love to talk about how the descent into hell is the beginning of Christ's state of exaltation, um, that he doesn't, he doesn't go to hell to suffer. He goes to hell to declare his victory. This is the beginning of him revealing without uh, remainder who he really is. And, uh, and then uh, this confession of the ascension at the end of the stanza might be my favorite line in the entire hymn, um, because it talks about him ascending into heaven but also saying that he had never departed heaven. And uh, this, this draws directly, um, I, I didn't look up the text uh, before the episode, but um, Jesus speaks, of this, speaks in this way in the Gospel of John. Um, he talks about uh, himself as being the one who descended from the Father but remained with the Father. And so uh, it's, a, it's a beautiful confession of, of Christ's two natures in that uh, he can descend from the Father in the incarnation, 
without leaving the Father. Uh, because uh, the divine and human nature are united in such a way that uh, Jesus, uh, God and man, can, can be here among us and at the right hand of the Father um, at the same time. Uh, and that's not a problem at all. Um, Drew, you might remember when we did the episode on the communication of the attributes, Martin Chemnitz liked to say, um, whoever makes the promise keeps the promise. And so since a man made the promise, I am with you always. Um, a man keeps the promise, I am with you always. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I, I see Columba confessing the same kind of theology here in the hymn. And then uh, the, the last stanza um, is, a, is a doxology, but it's a, it's a pretty beautiful one. Um, glory to God the Father, the unbegotten one. Um, all honor be to Jesus, his sole begotten Son, and to the Holy Spirit, the perfect Trinity, that all the worlds give answer, amen, so let it be. Um, the uh, you know, referencing God the Father as the unbegotten one, um, and Jesus as the begotten one, you know, these are standard ancient ways to confess the Trinity, um, because each person of the Trinity has a way they can be described, which is absolutely unique to them and can't be said of any of the other persons. Columba doesn't use the one for the spirit, because it would, it just wouldn't fit into a hymn very well, which um, proceeding or spirates, spirit spirates, how about that? Um, it's not very good poetry, but it's pretty decent theology. You, you, you should write a chorus for this hymn that has the Holy Spirit in it. Um, I, my, my poetry is almost as good as that of a Vogon. So I don't think it would be a good idea. <laughs> um, so anyway, um, that's, uh, that's the hymn. Uh, it's one of my... One of my favorites, um, partly for theological reasons, partly for sentimental reasons. Um, and uh, I think that's about all I have to say about it. Well, it's always, uh, I find that there's there's so many classic hymns that have that both uh, good theology and they're also sentimental, like you said. Um, ones that can really speak of the Trinity in all its classical ways. And um, I guess Christology too, you mentioned how, and I can, I can see how you as a, a, a Lutheran with that Lutheran Christology can definitely, um, the idea of Christ being not only at the right hand, but in and everywhere and with us can resonate. Um, yeah, we talked about that in that, that episode, that kind of distinction uh, between Lutheran and reform when it comes to, um, you know, just how, just how connected are the divine and, uh, I guess human, maybe not connected is the right word, but, um, how well, united, so. I mean, um, distinguished, but united. Right. Yeah. Yes. I don't know when the last time I've heard this, uh, you mentioned St. Patrick's breastplate. And I have to confess I have, 
I like the, the words of St. Patrick's Breastplate Fine, but I just could never like that tune for some reason. And I have so many colleagues who love that hymn so much. I just don't get it, but. I'm with you, Drew. It's the I, processional I, I, hymn at my ordination. That's my the ordination hymn at every ordination. <laughs> yeah, mine too. Uh, I, I, love the, I love the words. I really do. But the switching tunes in the middle oh. of the hymn is. Yeah utterly unsingable i cannot do that i don't oh, understand it. the lutheran version doesn't do that oh wow. um the lutheran version doesn't have that weird stuff in the middle of the hymn that is a completely different tune yeah. um and it makes it so 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 much better um give me a second and i will look up the um i'll, I'll look up the way that you can find a recording of that one uh online uh, because i think i suspect that you might like it better oh i'm, I'm sure i'd be I'm willing sure. to give that a chance yeah, um that was so, a major yeah, part of it, find was it you google on or you search on youtube for lsb 604 i bet you'll like it better that way charlie's just oh, i'm sure we're here to convert us to the missouri city well, I, I mean, I'm I'm the second LSB him he dropped today. So that's what I know. That wouldn't that wouldn't be the first thing with which I would agree with the Lutherans about. Um, so, uh, well, um, speaking of Missouri Synod, well, it's it's not particularly Missouri Synod, but I could go next. Um, that's all right. Um, Fortunately, I have to head out, guys. So, James, you'll have to listen back on. Uh, all right. I will. Him that I'm, I will. About to, I'm about to blast. So, all right. Sorry. Hey, brother. See you later. Okay. Uh, for all who are still here, this, um, I am going to play the next hymn on my list, which is I Come, O Savior, to Thy Table. Let me play it. Absolutely love that hymn, both the tune and the lyrics. Um, so my personal history with that hymn, uh, I mean, I've heard it my whole life for, I mean, people will know from past episodes, I was raised uh, Missouri Synod, both in a church and in a Missouri Synod school up until eighth grade um, and became uh, Episcopalian as a teenager. But um, I heard that tune probably so often. Um, and then uh, I, I didn't really realize uh, how much the uh, how much that tune meant to me until I stumbled upon it. I was actually it was, it was by chance. I was um, I was YouTubing. I was listening to some hymn on YouTube, some classic hymn, and I just let 
I just let it keep playing. I just, whatever channel, whatever playlist, you know how you'll leave a YouTube video on a, a music, then it'll go to the next thing and the next thing and the next thing. Um, I know we usually listen to music on Spotify or something, but <laughs> I happen to be using YouTube because they have a lot of hymns. And uh, then I started to hear the, hear this tune. This is about, this is, oh, it would have been about five years ago now. Um, and it just came, you know, the, just the, the memories of being at church and the pews with my family just came rushing back to me. And it's such a beautiful hymn. And so um, I bookmarked, saved that video. I was like, oh, this is a great hymn. And um, I ended up having it played at my ordination, um, the anthem before communion. Um, uh, shout out to Brian Mittnall, who was then the organist of St. Mark's Cathedral, Shreveport. He... Uh, he uh, brought the hymn in and had the full choir sing it. And uh, it was uh, probably the first time that hymn's ever been done in an Anglican setting, but, um, but it was uh, made my day. <laughs> so um, yeah, that hymn has a interesting history. I did some digging. I recommend listeners uh, and a lot of our listeners probably know about hymnary.org, which is just a website. You can just dig so much about history and source origins of uh, music and hymnody. I'm sure some of our other hosts here uh, used it for some of some of uh, what they've talked about, but no surprise because it's it's Lutheran origin, um, and it's actually not in any, to my knowledge, it's not in any non-Lutheran hymnal. Um, it is about communion. Uh, by the title, I come, O Savior, to that table, and the theology in it speaks very much of real presence, um, not in a transubstantiation way, which of course. Catholics would be on board with, but it speaks of real presence in a way that I could see a lot of Protestants may, you know, may have been leery of. So um, that could be the reason, though I I wouldn't think of any reason why uh, Anglicans couldn't sing it, but um, as many of them believe in the real presence. But, uh, and what I mean by real, I mean the uh, corporeal, and we would be getting, well, we, we've gotten to that on previous episodes, but um so that's that Eucharistic theology of it, but um, it's of uh, German origin. And uh, it's, so the author is Friedrich Christian Heider, and he lived from 1677 to 1754. And um, he was, uh, he served at a church near Halle, uh, he was ordained in 1706, so he would have been almost 30 when he was ordained. And then he served at this church for 35 years, um, which was a thing that was very common, even like one or two generations ago, still with being parish pastors. Um, he served at this one church. Couldn't There's not much, not much information, at least online, about him other than that. But I did some digging, and he's not the, so he's not the author of the tune. He's the author of this text. Uh, the German version of this text. And the German version of this text was translated. Um, it appears in a 1941 Lutheran hymnal, which Charlie, refresh me on the name of that hymnal from 41. The Lutheran hymnal. The Lutheran hymnal. There you go. And um, so it, it was one of the two tablets that was given to Moses on Mount Sinai. Of course, yes. Um, <laughs> but it also. I did some more digging and there's a English version before that in 1926, which I guess appeared in some 
slightly older than 1941 hymnals, of course, or maybe it was translated in 26 and well, no, it must've been translated in 26 and then changed because the English translation from 26 was not, I come O savior to thy table. It was, I come O Lord to thy communion. Um, and so let me just read some words from the, the modern, you know, version. And then um, I can, we'll be able to see how that other uh, version could fit. So um, starting with verse two, unworthy though I am, O savior, because I have a sinful heart, yet you, your lamb will banish never, nor will your faithfulness depart. Then the refrain, Lord, may your body and your blood be for my soul, the highest good. Lord, may your body and your blood be for my soul, the highest good. Verse three, your body given for me, O savior, your blood, which you for me have shed. These are my life and strength forever. By them, my hungry soul is fed. Um, so great English translation. Um, I, you know, it's, awesome how they can bring over German and English and have it still be so beautiful. But um, so that was from, I come all savior to that table, but um, you know, the, in the beginning, the first, the first verse is I come all savior to your table for weak and weary is my soul. Well, I can see how it could have been. I come all Lord to thy communion for weak and weary is my soul. It's the same. I'm not a musician, the same metric, I guess. Um, same, you know, uh, so I, uh, it's, got some interesting history there, but that Friedrich uh, Christian Heider, the one, the author of this text, he's not the author of the tune, the, the tune in German, I looked this up beforehand because I had to dust up on my German recently. I neglected it for a while, but it's Ich sterbe täglich, uh, which means I die daily. The name of the tune is I die daily. And which of course is a reference to Paul's writing to the Corinthians. Um, where uh, he says, I die daily. And of course, um, he says in 1 Corinthians 15, 31, I affirm, brothers, uh, by the boasting in you, which I have in Christ Jesus, our Lord, I die daily. And that is such a um, powerful passage for me, because I think that the, the daily life of a Christian involves a daily death. Um, so much of it is, um, well, you could, well, you could say, of course, because we are uh, until the return of Christ, we are all saints and sinners at the same time, not to be too Lutheran about that, but, um, and so every day we face the realities of our frailties sin, and sin and brokenness. And so dying daily to Christ is, is basically a way that's saying, you know, so much, so often our pride gets in the way of our outlook of every day. And it, it might be a boastful pride, but it also might be the kind of pride that just uh, sneaks up on you in the form of um, your own self-criticism. Some of our own, our worst critics are often our own selves. And I think that's a form of pride. I think that we are trying to highly lift ourselves to a place. Um, and then we forget that we have a savior who walks with us and lifts us to those places. And so, uh, the, you know, the, that passage of dying daily, uh, is, you know, such a good verse, but to know that this German tune originally was, um, was, was called that, or at least in the German, ich, ich sterbe täglich. So, um, and ich sterbe täglich goes, this tune goes back farther than text. It actually goes back to, um, a man named Johann Rist 
who wrote like 680 hymn tunes. Jan Rist uh, is German. Um, and he was a pastor as well, like the text writer. And he he has an interesting history because he lived during the 30 years war. We've never really done an episode on the 30 years war on this podcast. I'd really like to. Um, and at some point we will. We've referenced it, I think, in past episodes with uh, about um, about like the Reformation and the aftermath. But um, the 30 years war was a, you know, bloody just um, 30 years of religious conflict and intra-Christian conflict, I guess you could say, when Germany was um, basically divided up into three different territories. You had Catholic territories of Germany, you had Lutheran territories of Germany, and you had Reformed uh, or slash Zwinglian, I guess, um, territories of Germany. And so it was, um, and it was, you know, it was kind of roughly during, because there's, well, it is during the over, there's a lot of overlap with the period that Charlie mentioned that he's studying about with Protestant scholasticism and the really defining uh, one's confession uh, to distinguish it apart from and others. And I think there's a lot of good reasons for having to clarify your beliefs, but also an unfortunate thing we see because we're human is that people dealt with their religious differences in, um, in this type of, in this manner. And so uh, it was one of the, uh, you don't hear about a lot about it because I guess maybe because it was stretched out for so long and it's not like it's a official war per se, but it was just such a dark time um, in, in European history. And so this pastor lived through it, the, the author of the tune, um, Johann Rist. And I'm just going to uh, read a quote from, uh, which, from him, Neri, about his little bio on there. It said, during the Thirty Years' War, Rist had much to endure from famine, plundering, and pestilence. Otherwise, he led a patriarchal and happy life at Wedel, I think W-E-D-E-L, close to the congenial society of Hamburg. And as years went on, more and more esteemed and honored by his contemporaries. Uh, the Emperor Ferdinand III crowned him as a poet in 1644 and in 1653 raised him to the nobility, while nearer home, Duke Christian of Mecklenburg appointed him uh, Kirchenrath and Consistilioreth, among other literary honors he received in 1645. Uh, and while, so he, of course, I'm going to skip ahead a little bit. He, of course, took the side and that with all his might of the Protestants uh, during the Thirty Years' War, but he longed, as few did, for the union of the scattered elements of the body politic in Germany. He was a many-sided writer. His secular works are of great interest to the student of the history of the times, and his occasional poems on marriage um, are of interest as well. Perhaps the most interesting to the general reader are uh, what's a German title? I'm going to pro- well, Friede Wunschende Teutschland. Uh, and I'll put a link to this so you can see it. And um, so this was a play, which was uh, this play had uh, vivid pictures of the time. So I guess it's like a historical fiction, especially of the condition of lower classes during the Thirty Years' War. So I will put the link, excuse me, in the show notes to, to Riss, um, that little bio of him because there's a lot more there. Um, and it's just, he sounds like a very, you know, interesting person to that witnessed that very um, uh, important, but dark chapter. And my last note will be that. Um, so that tune, 
before it was set to the hymn I like, it was set to a hymn called Help Us, O Lord, For Now We Enter. Um, and that hymn, of course, I just read it in English. That was translated into English by the great Catherine Winkworth. Uh, and a lot of people don't know who Catherine Winkworth is, but they have heard her her work so much. She translated, she was the, she's an English um, English woman who translated so much German hymnody into English during the 19th century. Um, you know, you would not be able to go into an Episcopal church and hear blessed Jesus at thy word, uh, praise to the Lord, the almighty, uh, if thou but suffer God to guide thee, uh, these hymns, some of those, there's a lot of those are kind of more Lenten hymns, but and just so many praise to the Lord almighty is such a, an amazing hymn. Um, you know, didn't make my list for this series, but it's a, she is the reason why we have these hymns in English. And I, I think she's often, um, maybe not overlooked, but it's like, we, we, we don't realize how, um, much she has had to do with, uh, English hymnals uh, of any denomination. So yeah, sorry, I went for a little while there. I know you have a history with this hymn, Charlie, but <laughs> so or, <laughs> I honestly don't have much to add. Um, I, I, uh, I was just looking up. Um, I know a person. He's a professor at Concordia Seminary, St. Louis, and um, his PhD is in hymnology. Uh, and I think that he he did a fair bit of work on Catherine Winkworth in his uh, dissertation. Um, and uh, reading that. if you go to scholar.csl.edu and search for Viker, V-I-E-K-E-R, uh, you can download his dissertation. Uh, and I'm pretty sure that he writes quite a bit about Catherine Winkworth. I know that he's done a lot of study mm -hmm. um, on her work. She really was... Um, She's probably the the, the single uh, biggest influence in um, English speaking hymnody in the last two hundred years. Yeah. I don't think I don't think you could even debate that. Um, well, it's like hundreds. It's literally hundreds of hymns she translated. Yeah. Um, it's an it's an insanely huge number. She had the time to do it, I guess. But <laughs> uh, well. You are uh, ready to go, Stephen? Yeah, yeah. Mine. Uh, but <laughs> yeah, mine is "Oh Holy Night." It's a Christmas carol. So, All right. "Oh Holy Night," you're gonna My take it away. Yet, but we'll go ahead and play it anyways. <laughs>
yeah. Uh, so oh, holy night. Which... recorded like a minute and a half. I didn't even play it all of that. And he gave all our other hymns like 30 seconds. He must have like been really into a holy night because he's... <laughs> He's in the Christmas spirit. I, I'm like definitely in the yeah. Christmas spirit now. <laughs> Let's just skip Advent. Let's just... <laughs> right into it. That's awesome. No, obviously, I mean, I picked this hymn because, it, you know, it, it means a lot to me. And I wanted to pick a hymn or a, uh, a Christmas carol for our list because um, it's one of my favorite times of the year. Um, and uh, one of the reasons for that is the music. I mean, there's just so much music around Christmas and Advent and um that it's just a uh, it's a beautiful time that's a big part of it um but i learned a lot about this song first of all i'm gonna put this in the chat i need some uh intra podcast audience participation here to perhaps uh pronounce the name of the author of the lyrics of this song it is very french yes. and uh i yeah y'all want to take a whack at that <laughs> I have lots of students at our South Louisiana high school that would be able to translate that. Yeah, but uh, <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not even going to attempt it. <laughs> I'm not even going to attempt it. Uh, maybe you can put it in the show notes. And, I'll put it in the show notes. It's uh, four words. It's uh, French. It's French. And I will put it. In yeah. The if it shows up on my crossword, I'm I'm just going to, I can't, I can't get it. So um, yeah, but maybe a listener can tell us how it's pronounced, but um, the song "Oh Holy Night." Uh, I I googled it in preparation for this, and and it was interesting. Out of the gate, there were like you know, Google has those little questions. You know, if ever you search a search a, an item, it'll have like you know other requests, other searches that are similar to that. One of them was was um, uh, was "Oh Holy Night" written by an atheist. That was one of the questions. I was like, oh, interesting. So I I looked into it, and uh, it's interesting. Like this is a very christian song it's a, it's a beautiful song it's one that you know i've sang my whole life uh around christmas time um but it was written by somebody uh the, the frenchman that we named we did not name uh that later became a socialist he was part of the church at the time that he that he wrote it um but he later became a socialist and an atheist and uh it was it was written because a priest his priest wanted a song for uh, for the Christmas service. And uh, he he wrote the, the poem uh, form of it, which he thought was beautiful. And uh, he asked a friend of his who was a musician to put it to music. And that's how we, that's how we have this song that we have now. Um, the musician that he asked, you think maybe that was a Christian individual. And I uh, know it was a person of the Jewish faith. And so uh, the only thing Christians did to make this song happen was to uh, ask for it, I guess. Uh, <laughs> everybody else took over from there. Um, no but it's a beautiful song. That's that's it. God's going to give it to you um, in his own mysterious ways. That's right. That's right. Um, and I'll run through the song and then a little bit of history. Uh, it's a short one. It's, uh, Oh, holy night, the stars are brightly shining. It is the night of our dear Savior's birth. Long lay the world in sin and error pining till he appeared and the soul felt its worth. Um, that's, I love it because it sets the scene, you know, like you're, it's almost like you've stepped off a, a time machine and you're at this moment and it's a narration of what you're supposed to be observing. I think it's beautiful. Um, a thrill of hope, the weary world rejoices for yonder breaks the new and glorious morn. Fall on your knees. Oh, hear the angels voices. Oh, night divine. Oh, night when Christ was born. 
Onight divine, Onight, Onight divine. Um, and that's, that's cool. It's, it's a very, it's a very gospel centered song. And it's a song that uh, puts Christ's, um, Christ's birth and incarnation on earth as the answer to all of the world's problems, right? Uh, right off the bat, um, they, they kind of get into the uh, creation groaning idea, you know, in this verse, which I think is, is pretty cool. Um, but yeah, I mean, this is, this is Jesus as the answer. Jesus is the, is the solution to uh, what is wrong with the world, what's wrong with our hearts. Um, the, third, the third verse is interesting, and I'll talk about this in a minute, because um, it's picked up by uh, abolitionists in America, uh, you know, years and years later. Um, but chains he shall break for the slave is our brother and in his name, all oppression shall, shall cease him, uh, sweet hymns of joy and grateful chorus raise we with all within, let us praise his holy name. And obviously that's a, a message that resonates with the abolitionist movement. Um, and the fourth verse is, uh, Christ is the Lord, his name forever praise we. Noel, Noel, O night, O night divine. Noel, Noel, O night, O holy night. So that's that's the song. It's short. It's simple. Uh, it's beautiful and it rhymes. And so we, I guess, we like it. But the the history uh, of the song. This was uh, uh, back in 1847, was when the song was written. I should have said that earlier for context. Um, but uh, let's see here. Uh, I didn't know. Have y'all heard? Uh, Y'all heard about the, um, in World War II, there was supposedly a night where there was a ceasefire uh, between allies and Axis uh, soldiers. Oh, it, was a, it was a Christmas Eve. That was the story, I, right? I've heard it, but for World War I, there's, a, there's actually, I read, there, they did a, a, a children's book adaptation of I Read the Kids once. But yeah, I've, I've, but for World War okay. I. Okay. Yeah. yeah. And evidently that, that didn't happen exactly that way. But uh, I read several several articles about this, that during the Franco-Prussian War um, in 1870, that did happen uh, on Christmas Eve. And this song uh, was sung by one of the French soldiers um, during the Franco-Prussian War uh, across the, the din of battle. Um, and there was, you know, there was a 24-hour period of peace. Um, the, uh, after he finished singing the song, a German soldier uh, came up over uh, uh, out of out of the trench he was in, and evidently sang a uh, a Luther song, uh, "From Heaven Above to Earth I Come." Are y'all familiar with that one? Yeah, um, which yeah. I thought was yeah. I thought was interesting. Yeah, yeah. Um, so which which could, sorry. No, go go ahead. I was going to say we could read this as the world's first like like rap battle, like the earliest uh, version of that. <laughs> right. They're going back and forth with <laughs> different theological movements. But I, I like um, I love this hymn. I mean, I like David Phelps. Uh, I remember. I think that's the version that I've uh, hmm. heard and like a lot. I, I didn't know that abolitionist history. Um, I've noticed, I just looked it up and I don't want my speculation to be taken the wrong way, but there are a lot of black artists that have done this. I mean, Ella Fitzgerald, Nat King Cole, mm. um, just so many Al Green. And it's, I wonder if that's, if, you know, you don't see that with uh, like, you know, any European type of, of 
you know, sacred songs. Yeah. I wonder if, if there's a, that connection. That's and I didn't get my speculation could be taken the wrong way, but, you know, but, but I do wonder, you know, if that's, um, has become a part. Yeah. Of, and I mean, it, it, but it makes sense that it would, right? Just the, the message is, is so there, and um, and you know it's interesting. Like I think with a lot of a lot of like you know liberation theology, you can get it can you know get off base and uh, make make some you know make that the main message of the gospel. Um, but it's also true that uh, that that is you know that is the uh, part of the gospel that there is no. Uh, slave or free, you know, Jew or Greek, anything like that. That is part of God's vision for the earth is that we would all be in one under Christ. Um, and and, and that so sin, that is a, what sin does cheaply is dehumanize, right? And so, right. yes, there is that social implication of the gospel when uh, we uh, dehumanize others. Um, yeah. You know. Yeah. And, and, and that is, uh, which I, th- I think we do that a lot, I, you know, it's so interesting. It's just an aside note, but I, you know, I'm on a bunch of these like Christian pages on Facebook and most of them are like meme pages and they're just, you know, it's just stupid. Right. Mm-hmm. But it's amazing to me how like sometimes Christians are the, are the, the, like the meanest, <laughs> meanest people on the internet about some things we get, we get all upset and uh, it kind of goes out the window, you know, our, our, our trying to win this person over goes out the window uh, in favor of just, you know, crushing them or showing them that they're wrong. So, um, you know, yeah, we could use a little bit more of this, uh, the kind of, the kind of peace that these kind of meditations can, can bring us. Um, but yeah, so that was, that was interesting. The fact that the abolitionists picked it up in America, uh, you know, prior to the civil war, um, and use it as an, as an anthem, um, and a, a message that God was on the side of, of, of freedom and, and abolition. Uh, but then, um, I did not know this. This is the first song that was uh, performed on the radio. Um, the uh, I knew this was that. in Nat King, yeah. I literally just heard this a week ago that it was the first song performed. Uh, awesome. And if I'm not mistaken, was yeah. it Nat King Cole? What, huh? what was it? Nat King Cole? No, this is 1906, oh, and this was. Uh, this was in uh, Massachusetts. I'm trying to find the guy's name. Fessenden. Oh, that's way before. Yeah, yeah, way before Nat King Cole. Um, but this was like back when radios just carried, you know, dashes and signals. You know what I mean? Like just beep, 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 yeah. beep. And uh, this guy was experimenting with a new receiver. And he just started. He, he didn't play the song first, but uh, he read the Christmas story first out of Luke. And he's just reading his microphone, having no idea if it's if it's being picked up, and uh, people within the within the range of his uh, of his transmitter thought that I mean they were having a religious experience because this this box that all it ever does is beep is now you know reading the Christmas story, preaching the Christmas story. People thought there were that they were being visited by an angel. It was a it was kind of an amazing um, you know almost war of the worlds type moment where this is happening on the radio and no one has any idea what's going on and thinks this is a miracle. Um, but he reads the Christmas story out of Luke and then he, uh, he plays on the violin, uh, Oh, Holy Night, um, you know, uh, which is the very, very first thing for, uh, to be played on the radio. So it's, it's, it's interesting history, a very weird song with a, with an odd, uh, unexpected beginning. And it just keeps showing up because it, it has this, 
this you know power to move people and and speak to us where we're at so so yeah fascinating song my comment, I'm got to correct myself because the listeners are probably going to think I'm an idiot. Of course, radio existed before Nat King. <laughs> you mentioned War of the Worlds. Literally, literally Orson Welles recorded that like in the, what, early 30s. <laughs> radio's been around a while. I don't know. Yeah. What, I know I heard a story that about Nat King Cole, who did do, who has sung this, famously has sung this, this hymn. He was, I think, the first, again, I'd have to, look into this, but I think the lady who I was listening to said he was the first jazz singer heard on the radio and it was totally unexpected. Mm-hmm. Nat King Cole is not even a vocalist. He just played piano and mm-hmm. he was at a radio session. The singer didn't show up and they all looked at him to sing. He's like, I can't sing. And <laughs> lo and behold, everyone knows who Nat King Cole is because he decided to sing. Right. That's not related. No, there was definitely radio much longer. Before. So, I don't know why. I think it's just fascinating. You feel better. (laughs) I I just think it's just fascinating that, I mean, this hymn has some decent theology in it. Um, But as it comes to us, not a single Christian was involved. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, written by an atheist, composed by a Jew, translated by a Mm -hmm. Unitarian. No Christian. Oh, I didn't know that. That's interesting. <laughs> but but I mean, wow! Uh, it just shows that even um, even when an atheist encounters the Word of God, because uh, I mean, the author explicitly was trying to base it on Luke's Gospel. Um, mm-hmm. you know, they you can't help yourself. You know, you you end up with something you know, that confesses the truth. Um, you know, God doesn't need our permission to use us for his purposes. That's right. Right. That's right. And I think the other part of that too is that when you have, you know, some ways, uh, and you see this a lot with, with some, you know, uh, some atheist types today that know their that you know have studied their bibles better than many christians do and, and know uh know the the, the core teachings and, and theologies of our faith better than a lot of practicing believers do um you know and, and i think part of that is you know if you're going to contend with something you have to take it seriously um if you're if you're just gonna uh passively accept something you know you don't have to take it that seriously and, uh, you know, and, and, you know, I, I don't know if that's the reason that, uh, that the author of, of this, of this, uh, Carol, um, you know, did it. I, I you know, I want to say that, you know, he, he was trying to do a really good job and do right by, uh, by the person that asked him to, to create this song, um, with the theology and with the, with the, uh, reverent, uh, reverent tone and with, the, you know, to me, there's so much, glory to God in the song, right? That's, a, that's, there's these crescendos of that, uh, of that emotion and that, and that feeling. Um, and so, yeah, I, I want to believe he did that just to, uh, to do right and to do, to do well by the, the assignment he was given. But yeah, I think a lot of times people take it, take it seriously because they want to contend with it. And I think uh, that's really interesting. Well, and this is kind of similar to, you know, the, my kind of, um, when I was thinking about kind of the similar thing when we did Rayfon Williams in the last episode, um, uh, he was an agnostic, but wrote some of those beautiful sacred music. 
you know, Ray Fon Williams, he was even later than, than the people involved in the composition of this song. And it, it was from a time when like people could appreciate, I think I put it something like the, the artistic and literary value, at least of scripture. And at least mm -hmm. to, to contend with it, like you say, and take it seriously in that sense. Um, Mm -hmm. And I find like in our more secularized world today, I just don't know. I just don't see that happening. You know, I, I, speaking of secular world, I know so many people that just hate Christmas music. And to be honest, I can't blame them mm -hmm. because from the environments they're from, all they hear is the stuff on radio and mm -hmm. stuff uh, in retail stores, which is so yeah. much garbage music. Granted, you will hear a sacred sing. You actually will hear, if anything, you will hear All Holy Night, if any type of religious Christmas song. But just, you know, get yourself in a church around Christmas season and I just your opinion will change if, I don't know, we probably don't have any listeners who hate Christmas music. But I'm just saying like this, um, yeah, I love Christmas so much for the music. And there's lots of hokey Christmas mm -hmm. music, you know, Peanuts, Charlie Brown, all that stuff. I yeah, I don't like, but you know, um, Grandma got run over by a reindeer. I actually kind of like that one. I, actually, I remember when I memorized <laughs> every word of that song when I was little. Because uh, we, had, <laughs> I like song. I like bells will be ringing, you know. But I, for the most part, the secular Christmas music is terrible. It's just so cheap, mm. so bad. Um, yeah, mm -hmm. but yeah, that's awesome. Well, that's a good note to end on, you think? Listen to good Christmas music, not bad Christmas music. <laughs> yeah. All right, guys. Well, um, I love appreciate it. this. Look, appreciate the time you gave in. For our listeners, uh, make sure if you're listening to us on Apple, give us a rating and a review. If you're listening to us on Spotify, give us a rating. Anything else, uh, see what they, if they let you give a rating. We'd appreciate your feedback. So God bless. And uh, we'll be back with our next hymns episode at when we do it and uh, a few other episodes before then. So take care. Take care. God bless Sounds you. Good. Thanks, Drew. And James, while you're traveling. So, hi, this is Drew. I just wanted to offer a correction uh, in our con another correction, I should say, to the conversation surrounding the last hymn we just spoke about on this episode. Uh, Nat King Cole is definitely not the first jazz vocalist. Um, to be on uh, the radio. Uh, I did some research. I'm not quite sure who that would have been, but Louis Armstrong was definitely on the radio before him, which would make perfect sense because he was big in the 1920s and 30s. And, um, you know, while a lot of jazz music then as well as now is, is instrumental, um, if there was any vocalist in the 20s and 30s that was... Uh, uh, widely listened to in jazz music it was him so he was he was definitely on the radio I don't know if he was the first and uh, Louis Armstrong even hosted a um, uh, radio show in the late 30s and so uh, you know another embarrassing moment for me uh, you know as, especially as I as much as I actually love jazz music and I love music and movies from the 20s and 30s <laughs> so definitely should have known better than the than the Big Mac and Cole was somehow the first jazz vocalist heard on the radio. But um, that story about um, his about Cole and that radio session does explain at least the beginnings of his career as a vocalist, which he never would have pursued probably and just stuck to playing piano. So, but anyways, uh, uh, 
sorry about that. Glad to clarify. And um, our next episode we're excited about will be coming up in just a week. Uh, we'll have a special guest and who will be talking about uh, Christian heresies. We've not done an episode on his heresies and the history of heresies. And so uh, we're looking forward to that episode. God bless everyone, and uh, we'll, we'll see you when you tune back in.